This morning's topic is the dying seed from John chapter 12 verses 21 to 26. I was going to originally take a bigger chunk of scripture but I had to slow down because there is so much and we didn't take the offering? No, we'll do it after. Thank you. Um, we were going to do, I was going to do a bigger chunk, but because there is so much in it, I decided to slow down a little bit to just make sure that we grasp what God is trying to say to us. And even then, I'm sure that I still won't be able to get much of it. But whatever God gives us, I hope that we can appreciate it as something that is a, is a real treasure and a real nugget of gold for our souls. This is a crucial chapter in the Gospel of John. That is one of the reasons we're slowing down. Chapter 12 serves as a bridge, a connection with all that has happened in chapters 1 to 11 and all that will happen in the remainder of the book. Now, as you recall, we started the chapter with a party in honour of Jesus where some very grateful followers, which included the, the brothers Mary, Lazarus and Martha, put on a dinner banquet at Simon's house. Now at that banquet, Jesus, out of nowhere, is anointed with some very expensive perfume by Mary as a preparation for his burial, which at this stage... Mary and Jesus seem to be the only one who capture Jesus' words that he was actually going to die. Then this more or less private party, because everybody is peering outside of the house, want to get a peek at what's going on, but then this private event sort of blows up. It it, it expands into a much bigger one. There is a parade through the city in honour of Jesus, to welcome him as king. In the rest of the chapter, including today, Jesus announces himself as the turning point in history. What's more, Jesus came to this world to be the turning point in our lives. We can all just read history as History, it doesn't affect me. That's happened then, we're now, so what? But what happens here affects us. Jesus declares that he is the the fork in the road for every human being. Why do I say that? Because Jesus stations himself, he puts himself right in the middle of the road that we're travelling and he says, before you go past me, you have to make a decision. Ultimately, what we do with Jesus will determine our eternal destiny. I know that maybe that's not politically correct to say today, but what we do with Jesus determines our eternal destiny. First of all, let's look at verses 20 to 22 and under the topic, Seeking Jesus, Seeking Jesus We'll read those verses again. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in in Galilee, 
with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. So these Greeks, these Greeks turn up for the Passover feast. Why were they there? Why would they be seeking Jesus? Most likely they were God-fearing Gentiles that had obviously heard about Jesus because everyone in the region had heard about Jesus. They, in Philip, Philip is a, is a Greek name, they saw in him a, a, a fellow Greek with whom they could possibly get the inside track to get to Jesus because he also came from the region of Bethsaida. And Bethsaida was a, a more tolerant with Gentiles. There was a few more nations in Bethsaida, than, uh, so they were a little bit more tolerant than perhaps in some of the other Jewish cities and certainly more tolerant than the people in Jerusalem. So they go and ask him to get an audience with Jesus. In reply, it seems to us that Jesus gives us one of those non-answers that politicians love. Will you please answer the question, sir, type of thing. He goes on, because instead of answering the, question, the request, he goes on to talk about wheat and seeds and life and servants and masters. My response to his statement might be, so does this mean you will meet with them or not? For your information, the record is silent as to whether or not Jesus actually granted these Greeks an interview. We can perhaps make a case that he did because of who he was. thing is, even though for us it might not seem that he answered the question or gave a reply to the request, the thing is he was answering a question that goes much deeper than anyone there apart from Jesus would appreciate or even understand at the time. This is John, remember, looking back. He's reflecting. He was heralding a new era. The fact that the Greeks had come to meet him was a sign of the difficulties of the, of the of the fact that Jesus came to his own, his own rejected him. But now, this is a sign that the gospel was going to flourish. It was going to explode amongst the Gentiles. It was the next phase of, of missions which the book of Acts clearly delineates. It was to be carried out not by Jesus, but by his disciples. And Jesus was throwing out a challenge. He was talking now, illustrating what the changeover of the guard that was approaching was going to look like. It was going to be very costly, very costly. His description here is of a, a kernel of wheat which falls to the ground. It dies but as it dies, it brings forth much fruit. 
And all, all of this imagery has to very much has to do with his answer. But also, let's go back and look at this another way. In their requests, we would like to see Jesus. I see a cry of many today who want to see Jesus, but I'm not sure if they're prepared to see the real Jesus. Because I, my fear is that many follow Jesus or a form of Jesus, but they don't follow the real Jesus. Or they, la, 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 I'm not, I don't want to hear it, I don't want to know it. They may not say it that way and they go to a church where they preach the other Jesus, not the real Jesus. They walk away when things get too difficult. They may say that they want to experience meaning and purpose in their lives. All humans long for that. They long for a better world. They know that this world is broken, that things aren't right. And they wonder deep down inside whether anyone really cares. So can people see Jesus today? Can people see Jesus in you and me today? It has been said that you are the only Bible many will read. And Jesus entrusted us, he entrusted us with a message to go go into the world how much more precious then is it when people come to us and ask can we see Jesus can we learn more about Jesus please how much more precious is that wow what an opportunity Uh, I don't know go to to the pastor no man they're coming to you They know you. So let me ask you, when people get connected to you, do they see the real Jesus? The real Jesus, not the manufactured one, not the softened up, not the light one, but the real Jesus. Do they see the real Jesus in you? Verses 23 to 25 We move on, seeking life, seeking life. First of all, seeking Jesus. Next one, seeking life. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, in other words, this is serious stuff. I cannot stress this enough. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. You would note that many times, 
Jesus had said that his time had not yet come. Remember when Mary at the wedding comes and Jesus answers, my time has not yet come. Well, now the time has come. Now is the time. And these are the final days before his death when just a few days now, just a few days, everything becomes more intense, more poignant, more, more precious. Here Jesus is doing some serious teaching here, very concentrated. And, and we have another agricultural illustration. Why did he do this? Why did he use so much agriculture in his words, in his teaching? Because many of God's kingdom principles are actually revealed through nature. This is not surprising since God is creator of the spiritual world and he is creator of the the natural world, the physical world. And Jesus regularly taught spiritual principles through natural principles, natural processes and laws. That which is invisible in the spiritual realm can sometimes be seen through what we can see with our eyes. However, we still need to interpret God's world through God's word to properly assess it and understand it. Otherwise, we can fall into the temptation to just become naturalists and worship nature and trees and things. So here is a picture we can all understand. In slow motion, we see the seed fall to the ground and lay there, buried under the soil. But it is placed, remember our first reading? A man goes and puts the seed in the ground. It is placed there with an expectation now, there is obviously an inherent risk because anybody, anybody who has done any gardening knows that not every seed will come through, will germinate. There is an inherent risk because it is now up to the conditions around it and the God who supplies it. The parable of the sower talks about this, doesn't it? There's nothing wrong with the seed, but the conditions... The ground on which the seed falls is what makes a difference into the success or not of the seed. And we await. We put the seed in the ground and we await. How many of you put the seed in the ground and go every day digging it up, checking to see if it's okay? Are you all right? bit of music, maybe? Too cold, too hot, bit of water, not enough? How many of you here like this? Like, 
You're going you're gonna to draw it mad, aren't you? Just leave it there. So what happens then if instead of throwing that seed in the ground, you just leave it in your cupboard, in your pocket? What happens to the seed if it does not die? They have found seeds in the pyramids, by the way, about what, 3,000 years old. What happens is that it remains a single seed. Now, that, in the world of preservation, that might not sound all that bad if it remains a single seed. But it, in fact, it's not good either, is it? Jesus is the most precious seed that was ever laid in the ground. He came to lay down his life so that we may live. Now, no human seed can ever be as precious like that of Jesus. Having said that, Jesus here moves from his own life to our lives, the lives of of his followers, and calls us to do the same. Jesus says, Die so you can live. What a paradox. Die so you can live. Our lives is like a seed. If we choose to love life, we are refusing to let this kernel of wheat die, we will lose. The the net result is that Single seed yesterday, it will be a single seed tomorrow, next week, next year. Which Jesus says is equivalent to losing your life. But Jesus calls us to die. Die to what? Die to self. Die to pride. Die to resentment. Die to unforgiveness. Die to the material things that hold you back. Die to the honour and expectations that you place upon yourself and everybody else around you. Die to the whole meaning of what you consider to be success. Now, Die to life itself is what Jesus is saying. This is serious. Die to life itself. Now it doesn't mean it doesn't mean that we suddenly become reckless and even suicidal. Oh, I'm just gonna get or I just came out of church, I'm just gonna go and kill myself, bro. Is that what he means? We don't no, it's not a death wish. No. It is because we value life. We fight for life. We defend life. We value life so much because life is sacred. Life belongs to God that we are willing to surrender it. This is 
this is why, they, and I need to clarify it again, because in, in this world it's so easy that this word here, hates their life, unless you hate your life, hates their life needs to be clarified. We often hear people say, oh, I hate my life. Right? I hate my life. That's not what the passage is saying, okay? It's not what he's saying. It's not what he's supporting. It means loving it less than, than anything else. Loving it less because we have something much greater, much more beautiful, which is our salvation by grace through Jesus Christ, our eternal life. What will we do with our kernel of wheat? We do have a choice because we only have one seed, as it were, one life. And he calls us to think very seriously about how we will spend it. Because as every day marches forward, we cannot go back. And eventually, whether you want to spend this kernel of wheat, life, eventually is going to be taken away from you anyway. It has a use-by date. Doesn't it make a lot more sense to willingly surrender it before it is taken away from you? Will we spend it for the here and now? Or shall we invest it into the glorious future for the sake of the kingdom? Verse 26, seeking honour, seeking honour. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. That's that's an amazing promise right there. And then it gets even better. My father will honour the one who serves me. Do you seek honour? What does honour look like for the Christian? Do you want the honour of the world? Do you want to be invited? Do you you follow the applause, the accolades? The Apostle Paul said none, none of that is actually, he actually said all of that is actually dung, he called it. The only honour for which we aim is the one that comes from the Father. Good and faithful servant. Now, the, the, this statement here helps us understand that, that dying like a seed and, and hating our lives are description of, of what being a servant who obeys his master is like. Like in, in dying, we give up our rights to be in charge of our lives. And as someone who is dead, we don't tell God how to run our lives. Rather, we say, we are your servants, we will do whatever you ask. Our lives are under his control. And as Christ's servants, we follow him, we go where he leads us, we go where he goes. This is a lesson on humility, it is a lesson in servanthood that is expanded in 
John chapter 13. And what happens in John chapter 13? Where he washes his disciples' feet. Lesson in humility and servanthood. Now this is going to be a really hard lesson for his disciples to learn. We know that. We know the story of most of them, how they lived and how they died. But learn they will. Learn they will. Because you see, the the echoes of the people's hosannas were still sounding in their ears as Jesus marched into Jerusalem. But in four days' time, the hosannas are changed to crucify him. Don't follow the crowd. And, And then it is their turn. They will need to step up to the plate and be willing to suffer. See that man on the cross there? You're next, basically. But, but, but these things must not move them for their lives are no longer theirs. They belong to someone else. Jesus' followers must constantly battle against selfishness, against ease and comfort, against cowardice. Let me share with you a a true story. I've shared it before a few years ago and I've shared it in other churches. Every time I tell this story, I tear up, so forgive me, okay? It is a true story and obviously it hits a nerve somewhere in in some subconscious level that I can't, for some reason, be able to control. But anyway, it is a true story and it's adapted from the book Fresh, Fresh Power by Jim Simbala. Back in 1921, a missionary couple named David and Svea Flood went with their two-year-old son from Sweden to the heart of Africa, uh, to, the, to they, um, what used to be then the Belgian, known as the Belgian Congo. They met up with another uh, Scandinavian couple, the Ericssons, and soon the four of them felt led by God to move out of the central mission station and take the gospel to one of the the most remote areas of the Congo in Central Africa. And they settled, um, they went to this village called Endolera and uh, the tribal chief um, wouldn't let them enter his town for fear of alienating the local spirits, the local gods. So the two couples decided to go half a mile away and build their own huts. They prayed for a spiritual breakthrough. It never came. Their only contact with the villagers was a young boy who was allowed to sell them chickens and eggs twice a week. Svea Flood, a tiny woman, decided that if this is the boy, the the only African boy, that she, the only contact that she was going to have, then she was going to lead him to Jesus. And in fact, over a period of time, she succeeded. But there were no other encouragements. Meanwhile, malaria struck one member of their group after another. In time, the Ericssons decided they had enough and they returned to the relative security of the central mission station. Then, in the middle of this primitive wilderness, 
Zvia found herself pregnant and when the time came for her to give birth, the village chief softened enough to allow a midwife to help her. A little girl was born whom they named Aina. The delivery, however, was difficult and Svia, already weak from malaria, lasted only another 17 days when she died. Now inside David Flood, her husband, something snapped. He dug a crude grave, buried his 27-year-old wife and then took his children back to the Central Mission Station. And while giving his newborn daughter to the Ericsons, he declared, I'm going back to Sweden. I've lost my wife and I obviously can't take care of this baby. God has ruined my life. With that, he left, rejecting not only his calling but God himself. Unfortunately, eight months later, both of the Ericsons were stricken with an illness and died within days of each other. The baby was then turned over to some American missionaries who adjusted, uh, who changed her Swedish name to, to Aggie and eventually took her home back to America. Not the end of the story. As a young woman, uh, she attended a Bible college in Minneapolis and there she met a married a, man, a young man named Dewey Hurst. Years passed. The Hursts enjoyed a fruitful ministry and her husband became principal of a Christian college in Seattle. Now one day, out of nowhere, as things tend to happen, right? There are no coincidences in God's economy, as you know. One day a Swedish religious magazine appeared in her mailbox. And she had no idea who had sent it and she couldn't read the words. But as she turned the pages, all of a sudden a photo stopped her cold. There, in a primitive setting, was a grave with a white cross. And on the cross were the words, Zvia Flood. Aggie jumped in her car, went straight to, the, to find a college faculty member who could uh, read some Swedish and could translate. Um, what does it say? Please tell me. The instructor summarised the story. He said, look, it's about uh, some missionaries that had gone to Andalera long ago, the birth of a white baby, the death of a young mother, uh, one little African boy who had been led to Christ and now, after all the whites have left, the boy had grown up and finally persuaded the chief to let him build a school in the village. The article said that gradually he won all his students to Christ <coughs> And the children led their parents to Christ and even the chief became a Christian. Today there are 600 believers in this one village alone. All because of the sacrifice of David and Svea Flood. I'll get some water. That is not the end of the story. I told you this is why it hits me every time. 
Now, for the 25th anniversary, the college gifted them a vacation in Sweden. And there, Aggie sought to find her real father. He was an old man now. David Flood had remarried. He fathered four more children and generally uh, dissipated his life with, with alcohol. Uh, he recently suffered a stroke. Uh, he's still bitter. He had one rule in his family. Never, ever mention the name of God because God took everything from me. And after an, um, an emotional reunion with her half-brothers and, and half-sisters, uh, Aggie brought up the subject of seeing her father. And the others hesitated. Look, you can't talk to him, they replied, even though he's, he's very ill now. But you need to know that whenever he hears the name of God, he flies into a rage. Aggie, or Aina, wasn't deterred. She walked into this squalid apartment with liquor bottles everywhere and approached this 73-year-old man lying in a rumpled bed. Papa, she said. He turned toward her and began to cry. Aina, he said, I never meant to give you up. It's all right, Papa, she replied, taking him in her arms. God took care of me. And the man instantly stiffened up. The tears stopped. God, God forgot all of us. Our lives have been like this because of him. And the old man turned his face back to the wall. Aggie didn't let up. She stroked his face and continued, Papa, I have a story to tell you, and it is a true one. You didn't go to Africa in vain. Mama didn't die in vain. The little boy you want to the Lord grew up and won the whole village to Jesus Christ. The one seed you planted kept growing and growing. There are 600 African people serving the Lord because you were faithful to the call of God in your life. Papa, Jesus loves you. He has never hated you. And the old man turned back look into his daughter's eyes, his body relaxed and uh, he began to talk now. By the end of the afternoon, he had come back to God, the God he had resented for so many decades. That is not the end of the story. A few years later, the Hearst were attending an evangelism conference in London when um, a report was given from the nation of Zaire, former uh, Belgian Congo, and the leader of the national church representing about 110,000 uh, believers spoke of the, the gospel spread in the, in the nation and how the gospel just exploded. Aggie just couldn't help herself, um, so... She went to ask him afterward if he had ever heard of David and Svea Flood. Yes, madam, the man replied. It was Svea Flood who led me to Jesus Christ. I was the boy who brought food to your parents before you were born. In fact, this day, your mother, your mother's grave and her memory are honoured by all of us. He embraced her. They cried. And then he continued, he said, you must come to Africa to see because your mother is the most famous person 
in our history. In time, in time, that's exactly what happened. Aggie Hurst and her husband went there. As they arrived um, in Africa, there was a cheering throngs of villages. <clears throat> the most dramatic moment, uh, of course, was when the pastor escorted Aggie to see her mother's grave, to see the white cross for herself. She knelt in the soil to pray and give thanks. Later that day in the church, the pastor read from John 12:24. our passage this morning. And what is it? I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. I had to tell you that story. I had to tell you that story. Some of us are refusing to die. Die to the self, die to the things of this world and just really live up to what we were called to be, to be born again. Unless you die, you cannot be born again. And Jesus' way is is not just that initial moment that we give our lives to Christ, but it is the continual, continual living in His grace, in His mercy, that no cost is, is... is high enough, will ever be high enough. That God's way of obtaining the very best is actually by turning over, giving it up. It's not glamorous, I give you that. It is sad at times. I just told you a story of how sad it can be. In fact, it brings tears, many tears. And while we all crave success and we, you know, conference after another and all of this, the results of the seed willing to die is there. It's not immediately visible, is it? It's... We want the immediate, but yet the immediacy needs to be replaced with waiting. And perhaps the most confusing is that life is substituted by death. Each of us has one life. We get to keep it or lose it. But if we give it away for the kingdom within us, we gain life in all its fullness, as we were meant to be. And God help us to understand the meaning of what these words are. Amen.